0: On today's podcast, we welcome one of our sports real pioneers, Dr. Gordy Hill. He tells us about his medical life, his Nobel Prize nomination, and speaks with great detail about his early years in the lower keys. Silk fly lines, gut leaders, and pulling his skiff while standing on the cowling were standard tools and practices of his early years on the water. He eventually made enough money to chase the world's great fish sit back and listen to some wonderful storytelling from one of our sport's greatest living legends, Dr. Gordy Hill. We broke
1: everything, we broke lines, we broke hooks, we broke rods, we broke our minds, we broke marriages, we broke the whole
0: thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow and he turned around the other way and I shot him going through the other way. So I double lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut.
1: I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet.
0: And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride.
2: (laughs) There's something fishy going on here.
0: Dr. Gordy Hill, it is such an honor to have you uh, on the Millhouse Podcast. I've heard of your name for so many years with your good friends, Paul Dixon and others. Uh, your reputation precedes you very much so. But for the most part, I think you've kind of flown under the radar. And for all of the, uh, the audience out there, Dr. Hill is one of the foremost hip replacement surgeons in the country back uh, when you were doing all these uh, surgeons or surgeries, and at one time, you were, I think, doing more than anyone. Um, the president of the Hip Society said, every significant development in the field of total hip replacement during the last 10 years came out of Dr. Gordy Hill's operating room.
1: Yeah, he said that when, when I was at the meeting and he and, and announced my retirement.
0: Right. Um, you were also up for a Nobel Prize in medicine. And you collaborated with Dr. Roger Hagen, a pathologist and and chief of the blood bank at Holy Cross Hospital, to successfully process a patient's own blood for an infusion. This was during the AIDS crisis when healthy people were contracting AIDS from a routine blood transfusion. You and Dr. Hagen were nominated for the Nobel Prize in Medicine for this medical achievement.
1: May I correct you for a minute? uh, You pronounce his name Hagen. Roger Haugen. Haugen,
0: okay. Um, And then here's, that's your, we're going to talk a little bit about that, but I'd also like to, you know, read something that you wrote recently. Over my years, I have also thrilled to the leap of a large Atlantic salmon or that of a much smaller landlocked salmon. Then there is the spectacular leap of a big Mako shark. I also love the amazing way a hooked spinner shark twists and spins around in the air. I still recall with pleasure the shining silvery leap of a trophy-sized queenfish, the aerobics of an Australian Saratoga and the Billabongs, or leaping she-fish above the Arctic Circle. Then there are sometimes awesome leaps that billfish make. Tattooed onto my brain is the vertical leap of a broad bill swordfish as it tries to spear a full moon as it comes shooting up like a Polaris missile. Though I've tried many times, I've never hooked one on fly. And now that I'm no longer young, never will. You have had a, an amazing life. Before we get into the fishing, let's go back to your medical life. How were you inspired? I know that your, your father, Pop Hill, and your grandfather, Clifford Houston. I think his name is. No, Clifford Hewittson. Hewittson. They really inspired you at a young age. You said you started uh, throwing a fly at the age of five.
1: The truth is I was young enough that I don't remember them showing me how to do it, which they obviously did. So it might have been even before that. Right. Uh, I used my grandfather's uh, bamboo rod uh, because uh, the only two uh, fly rods we had back then, remember I was born in 1930, were made out of bamboo or else greenheart. Those were the only fly rods we had.
0: Right. And then also, too, uh, I know that Joe Brooks was really uh, a mentor to you at a very young age as well. Yes. And your family members.
1: Yeah. Uh, Joe was born in um, in 31. Uh, my father was born, uh, not 31, 01. Right. And my father was born in 02. I was born in 1930.
0: Right. What did your father do for for a living he
1: he was uh, prior to the second world war uh, a principal in a a business school in uh, flushing uh, long island new york
0: and so how did you move and gravitate to medicine
1: oh i knew i wanted to be a doctor when i was in high school
0: do you remember when that light switch went off
1: uh it didn't go off it uh, it materialized gradually i was interested in science at one point, I wanted to be an astronomer. Uh, you know, I was interested in advanced mathematics and that sort of thing. And then uh, my mentor became my family doctor, Dr. Tita, in Port Washington, New York. He was a wonderful man, and, uh, and uh, I admired uh, the way he treated his patients, including those in my family as well as me. I wanted to be like him.
0: Well, good for you. what uh, how did you gravitate to orthopedics?
1: Okay, long story, but tellable. I'll keep it brief. I was uh, during medical school absolutely fascinated with uh, neurology and neurosurgery. I had made up my mind I was going to become a neurosurgeon. I had my uh, after graduating from medical school, i, uh, I had my internship in Boston and arranged it so, uh, although I didn't get any orthopedic training at all there, I uh, had two uh, stints on uh, neurosurgery and I loved every minute of it. I then uh, had arranged to, uh, I applied for a residency at the Massachusetts General Hospital, which is the Harvard Medical School uh, and was accepted uh, for residency in neurosurgery. At that time, uh, there was, um, uh, it was right at the end of the Korean War, and the government had uh, adjudicated that any MDs, doctors, were subject to the draft until they were 58 years old. Whoop! I didn't want to get into practice and, and then have to leave for two years and do my duty and then try to come back and rebuild a practice. Uh, so I volunteered. Uh, I entered the Army, it was a paratrooper base in uh, at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and they made me a commanding officer of a field hospital, which is like a mash. But this one was all packed up, ready to fly out and parachute in somewhere. Wow! We never did that because peace reigned. Uh, and I decided to do what all uh, red-blooded American boys should do, and that's go fishing. Well, I hadn't had any money during my training. Uh, Gee whiz, I was married and had a couple of kids when I was uh, an intern and a resident. My wife used to have to hunt for bottles to take back to get the return five cents or two cents so we'd have dinner because I had two kids to support and no money. As an intern, I made $25 a month. Wow. And you can't raise two kids on that and pay rent too. Okay, but we got by. Now you'll see where I'm going with this. The first thing I did when my first army paycheck was buy an outboard motor. <laughs> <laughs> That's
2: such a great
0: story. Yeah. <laughs> did you did you harvest a bunch of these fish for dinner to feed your family in those yeah, early years? Oh yes.
1: oh yes. That that was a given. What, what was
0: what was your favorite fish at that point? To eat or to catch? Both.
1: Okay, my favorite fish to catch was a a bluefish over 20 pounds. I love those big, fast-fighting bluefish. Now, my friends like Paul Dixon, who is probably one of the best guides on the planet, and uh, my other good friends at Montauk don't understand why I don't uh, say, well, I'd prefer to catch tuna, and I've caught a lot of them on fly, or or, uh, striped bass because those are the itch fish.
2: They're glamorous.
1: Yeah, but the bluefish fights right. harder. And he jumps better, and I love fish that jump. Right. But we didn't have tarpon on Long Island. I didn't even know what they were. Right. Anyway, with that as a background, I uh, uh, went fishing on a lake on the reservation at, uh, at uh, Fort Bragg, uh, where they had some marvelous uh, bass fishing. And I had my outboard motor in my trunk. It was all of five horsepower. <laughs> Well, I met an older guy there, and he had a little skiff, but he didn't have any outboard. And you can imagine, we got together pretty quick. He turned out to be the uh, full colonel who was in charge of the orthopedic surgery department at the Womack Army Hospital there. He had been a full professor of orthopedic surgery at the prestigious Steinler Clinic in Iowa, uh, but he had joined the army for many reasons, one of which was that his wife had a chronic medical problem and he could get free medical care there, Uh, uh, you know. But he was a wonderful chief. And after a a day of bass fishing together, he said, you know, I can get you TD'd to my hospital. TD, of course, is temporary duty uh, in Army language. And I said, you're on. We shook hands on it. Uh, The next day, he had me TD'd from the uh, a field hospital to the uh, Warmack Army Hospital. And for two years, he was my mentor, and he taught me orthopedic surgery. By the time I finished there, I had done uh, uh, almost 600 major operations under his uh, tutelage. Wow. Uh, As a result of which, the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery granted me a full year of residency training surgery, and I hadn't even had my residency.
0: Good for you. It
1: was a win-win. Yeah, uh, I love that old man. It's I,
0: interesting how fishing brought you into your profession, you know, orthopedic surgeon.
1: Okay, you brought it up. Let me go back. I wanted to get uh, a residency at uh, Bellevue Hospital in New York City because uh, they had the they offered the greatest experience for uh, young orthopedic surgeons being trained, and I went in and had my interview. And uh, the professor there was a crusty old fellow about as old as I am now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 90. <laughs> uh, and he was sitting in a great big oak desk. And, uh, uh, of course, I'm the uh, uh, the uh, uh, applicant, and I'm sitting down there looking up at him, you know. But what prevailed over all else was the fact that above his head, mounted on the wall, was a bonefish. Well, I had already caught my first bonefish on a visit to Florida. And I opened with saying, uh, sir, that's a beautiful bonefish up there. We talked about bonefishing and permit fishing for an hour and a half. He never asked me any other questions. And he stood up and said, I like the cut of your jib. You got the job. <laughs> well, it didn't end there because he said, uh, you know, you can start in three years. I said, sir, I've got three children to uh, bring up. Uh, I don't have any money, and i got to start now. He says, I'll take care of that. I don't know what he did, but I got the job and could start immediately. So, yeah, fishing has helped me in many ways. Oh, that's (laughs) amazing. Uh,
0: You know, also, too, how did this Nobel Prize in medicine come to be? Because here you're an orthopedic surgeon, and you're starting to to talk and, and study blood infusions. How did that come about? It had nothing to
1: do with the with the uh, uh, blood it except for the fact that uh, that we had a method of providing blood for surgical patients, which was proven. Roger Haugen and I had been doing this for ten years, so we had the numbers with statistics that had uh, uh, realistic P factors okay, and we published that in uh, the May of I don't remember the exact year, uh, in the uh, uh, American Journal of Medicine, and uh, uh, it was acclaimed because just at that point, people were wondering what the heck to do with uh, respect to blood transfusions when people were getting AIDS from these transfusions. And,
0: and, and let's not forget that Arthur, I, Arthur Ashe contracted AIDS with a, with a blood tr- uh, transfusion. You bet.
1: Now, we didn't do it in the beginning, 10 years before that, because of AIDS because that hadn't been an issue yet. The only experience I'd had possibly with AIDS was back in medical school in the 50s when they presented a case of a person who apparently had lost his immune system and nobody knew what that meant. They didn't have a name for it, so they presented it as a curiosity case. I never saw another case until years later. And of course, AIDS, by the time we published this uh, paper, was uh, not only prevalent, but a disaster in many sectors. For sure. We did it because of hepatitis B. We had had several patients who had gotten transfusions uh, at at our hospital in Fort Lauderdale get hepatitis B as a result of blood transfusions, and that was our target. But it turned out to be just great to uh, be able to give transfusions uh, and... uh, know that it'd be a low likelihood of our patients getting AIDS. Now, this was frozen blood. I give the credit to uh, Roger Haugen for the lab stuff that he did, figuring out how to safely freeze this blood after separating the cells from the plasma. Uh, Whereas on my end of it, uh, uh, I was taking blood from a patient as he was on the operating table by suctioning it from the wound instead of it letting it go on the sponges and the drapes and that sort of thing. And we figured out a method of filtering that blood so we could put that blood right back in the patient as it's being lost. Wow. So it was a a compound paper. Well, I didn't get the Nobel Prize for that. I was mentioned. Right, and you
0: were nominated for a prize, right? Yeah,
1: but somebody else got the Nobel Prize. But that's still big. Yeah.
0: Do you remember what won the prize that year? I don't remember. Yeah. It's, fa- it's a fascinating story. Um, what is the highlight of your medical career? Possibly that nomination for a Nobel Prize.
1: It all depends on how you look at it. Uh, I was known for. Uh, uh, well, let me let me go back a little bit. In doing the total hip replacement, I was the sixth surgeon in the United States to do the procedure. I had learned it from uh, Sir John Chonley in England uh, and also uh, Professor Muller in Switzerland came back to the States. There were five other surgeons who had done the procedure. I didn't talk with any of them, I just got the uh, materials and the prosthesis uh, from England uh, and uh, went and did it, having learned it. Now. Uh, the United States government uh, put the kibosh on the importation of the polymethyl methacrylate, which is the cement that was used to hold the prosthesis in position. Why would they do that? Because they, had, they felt that it hadn't been studied well enough in this country.
0: So the FDA put a block on yes. it? Yes. Okay.
1: Uh, for for, for uh, two or three years. I can't remember exactly for how long. But I had already used it having gotten it from North Hill Plastics in London, and I had a nice supply of it. Because I figured something like that might happen. Right. So I was doing st- total hip replacements when uh, none of the other surgeons in the United States could get the cement to do it.
0: You were stockpiling. Uh-huh. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah. What? Uh, how much difference uh, is there today in hip replacement versus when you were doing it?
1: Uh, there's a lot of differences, but the way it's done today mostly around the world is a method that uh, I had presented at the Harvard Medical School years after I had done many of them. Wow. You see, there were multiple methods by that time of doing a hip replacement. The cement method worked very well in the beginning, but the cement would come loose after a few years and provide all kinds of problems. Right. There was a higher rate back then of infection with the total hip replacements. Uh, especially done with uh, with um, uh, cement. Uh, and uh, so it uh, uh, led to a search for other methods of fixation. Uh, uh, there was the use with respect to the socket of screws to hold the socket in place. Uh, there was um, uh, uh, methods of screws screwing the prosthesis with a uh, thread-like surface uh, into the bone uh, and that sort of thing and cement and that's all it was. Well, I had a real disaster on my hands. I had to figure how to handle this. I was in surgery, I drilled a hole in the man's pelvis to put the uh, screw in to hold the uh, socket in place and he bled out of that hole. It turns out that uh, in drilling in there, I had hit a little-known artery up in the pelvis. Oh. Yeah. Now, uh, Harry Rubash at the Harvard Medical School uh, studied a lot of pelvis uh, cases and did a lot of uh, anatomic dissection of pelvises, and he found a high incidence of that artery uh, in his specimens going into the area where you might be drilling a hole to put a screw in, to hold the socket in place. Uh, But here's what I did. I uh, uh, packed that hole with uh, gel foam and topical thrombin, which are things that help stop bleeding, and I got the bleeding stopped. Uh, I I figured, I don't want to put cement in there with that. I'm sure not going to put another screw in there. So i got to figure something different. So what I did was to use a uh, hemispherical... Bone ingrowth prosthesis that was uh, four millimeters uh, larger in diameter than the opening in the pelvis. And I impacted it into place. The bone ingrowth surface being rough, it, it held just beautifully. Right. I couldn't move it. I had it in the perfect position. I figured, okay, I'm going to take a deep breath with this because nobody had ever done that before that I ever knew. And then I put in the femoral component in a standard way, closed them up. Uh, And he did fine. Well, that was the beginning. I figured, wait a minute. If this fellow's doing fine with an impacted press fit prosthesis, uh, why don't I do some more of these cases and see how it works? Now, before doing that, I needed to uh, uh, get permission to do experimental surgery. I did this as a matter of uh, an emergency. And it worked. But... I, I. I was not a known experimental surgeon. I didn't have a, uh, uh, a uh, an experimental number, which the government give, gave out back then or anything. Well, I had a patient, very wealthy man, whose name I won't, because you'd know who it was, wanted to have me do a total hip on him. Uh, he couldn't get anybody else to uh, do it with the cement because of the government rule. Right. He didn't want to go to Switzerland. He didn't want to go to England. And he was a good friend of Dickie Nixon, who, remember, was our sure, president. Sure, So he arranged uh, for me to meet with uh, Nixon and uh, 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 what was his sidekick's name, uh, Rabozo, Right. Uh, on Grand Key, which was right up my alley. In because, the Bahamas. Yeah. because
0: You can operate in the morning and bonefish in the afternoon. There you go.
1: Yeah. <laughs> So uh, we met and, uh, and my patient was there too, big donor, you know, and we had a discussion about this and uh, uh, Nixon and Roboso had a little private conference and they came back and they said, we're going to give you an investigational exemption number. Ha! I couldn't have been more happier wow. because now I could do them uh, uh, with that number. And I did them all that way. And they turned out beautifully.
0: Like they say, it's good to know people in high places. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And sometimes in low places. (laughs) Well, I uh, presented, uh, after uh, doing a a couple of hundred of them, I presented my cases as an invitational uh, lecturer at the Harvard Medical School and uh, uh, showed slides exactly how to do it and all that. Uh, Very rightly, the professor there who was uh, Bill Harris, wonderful guy, marvelous surgeon and a better teacher, one of the best teachers in the world, which I guess is why he was at Harvard and was chief of surgery there. Uh, He decided to send a team down to study my cases. Good move. They sent a team down, uh, including uh, 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 Tom uh, uh, Smallsreed, who I think now is chief at UCLA of, of orthopedics. Uh, we called him Tom Tollsreed because he was uh, seven foot three or something like that in height, you know. Uh, and anyway, those guys stayed for several days. They went through all of my previous x-rays before and after x-rays uh, uh, with my permission and my patient's permission. They interviewed... Uh, cases where I had already done them and they scrubbed with me up in surgery to watch me do it. So Bill Harris was doing his homework before he subscribed to that. Right. Uh, I remember one time uh, at Harvard, I was also lecturing on how to get specimens from the hip joint to see whether there's an infection or not by putting a needle in the hip. And they had a very low yield of positive cultures. Uh, I had a 97% yield and uh, I went through all the critical steps to describe how I did that and got such a high percentage of results. When I got finished with that, uh, the guys kind of sighed. Uh, there were some five or 600 surgeons there. And Bill Harris, who remembers was chief of surgery there, he said, well, Dr. Hill, we thank you for your presentation. Let's hope we're not held to those
0: standards. (laughs) 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 So I've had an interesting life with this Yes, you have. Um, What about the Lenox Hill knee brace? Um, As a skier, I had a number of operations. I think in my early years, I think Joe Namath had a Lenox Hill knee brace. Did that that have anything to do with your name, Lennox no. Hill?
2: No. Okay. Uh, no. It, but that was a great try, Dad.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it would have, it would sound nice, but no, I had nothing to do with that. Right. It, it came from the fact that that was from Lennox Hill Hospital.
0: Right, right. Now, um, were you fishing during these uh, these years where you were operating so profusely?
1: Oh yes, I could do uh, as many as seven total hip replacements in a day.
0: So you would work hard and take time off to travel?
1: I'd work my ass off to get a weekend so I could fish. Also, I built an orthopedic practice uh, that was uh, second to none as far as I know.
0: So you were making money on everybody else's work.
1: Yeah, I I ended up owning, I bought the other guys out and ended up owning the the, uh, Fort Lauderdale Orthopedic Group. Uh, and at the time of my retirement, we had 10 active orthopedic surgeons. So you see, I had plenty of guys to put on call sure. to take care of my patients when I was out fishing. Right. I set it up that way. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm an energetic guy like you are. And I always have been. Let's see how are you, you I, do when you're 90. <laughs> I see this.
0: I see
2: this very much. So, so, so when you retired, did you come straight down here to the Keys? Sure. Who wouldn't? To Big Pine. Yeah. Yeah, I've been here ever since. See,
1: I brought my boat back because. Oh, I I I don't think we've covered that, but this is uh, this is germane to the present story. Uh, Priscilla and I, my wife, um, I married her when we were seventeen. We're about to have our seventieth wedding anniversary. Wow! Congratulations! Yeah, and and we're very very much in love still, and fortunately have our health. Another story. Okay, we. were members at the Crown Colony Club at Chub Key, and I kept my boat there um, uh, at the docks. I had a couple of other boats in Fort Lauderdale, but this one was a a beautiful marlin boat. Uh, It it was a a 38-foot Rybovich and I mean, it raised fish. Oh, just wonderfully! And uh, uh, got many, many stories there, Uh, but I, but I. Then I sold it after it had caught fire and and was uh, at risk for more fires for reasons that we don't need to get into here. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't think it was safe. So I got rid of that boat and I bought a 51-foot Carolina hull built by Julian Guthrie in North Carolina, made for those North Carolina seas. Right. A pair of Cummins 370s uh, diesels. And she was a marvelous boat. 18-foot beam in the stern. Uh, she drew five and a half feet. Uh, now, think about going around the Bahamas and drawing five and a half feet. you got to know where you're going. Right. So I studied navigation. Uh, I was always big on mathematics uh, and all that and um, uh, became a, a pretty damn good pilot. Now, at Chubb Key, I had a captain. He was a Bahamian. You had to. And I had a couple of Bahamian mates, except when my two boys were off for the summer and then they mated, you know. Uh, But the the, uh, Bahamian government wanted to conscript the boat and the uh, captain and mates to go shoot Cubans uh, because they were accusing them of poaching lobsters on the Grand Bahama Bank. And I could see there was no way around this. So I brought, I, I I called and ordered my captain to bring my boat back to the states. <laughs> he didn't know this, so he doesn't make a call when he crosses the three mile limit, and I get stung because it's an American documented vessel, and had to uh, and was uh, uh, was uh, fined uh, five thousand bucks for that. Uh, uh, this is a side story, but you might find it interesting. So I called my surveyor. Who was one of the biggest surveyors uh, in uh, South Florida, and his daughter just happened to be sleeping with one of the uh, Coast Guard admirals, and she got it all taken care of. <laughs> <laughs>
0: like I it said, it's good to know people in high places, yeah, and or low yeah. places,
1: yeah. So I brought I brought the boat back to the states, sold it, and uh, came down here. Now in preparation for that, back that uh, that would have been when I was uh, 64. Five years old. Back in the 70s, I had been looking for properties here in the Keys. We went all up and down the Keys. I wanted a place where the fishing was best, where there were fewer uh, guides. Uh, of course, in the 60s when we fished here, there were no guides at Key West except for Ganey Maxwell, and you know who he was. I've I-
0: just I've just heard of his name. I don't know his reputation.
1: Oh, well, he he ran a jet ski boat. Uh, Not jet ski, a jet boat out of uh, uh, Key West Harbor, and he was the only flats guide there. Uh, He retired, and then he bought a big Hatteras, and we used to have him tow our skiffs out to dry Tortugas. uh, Uh, That's
0: 75 miles away from Key West. I can't even imagine the fishing back then.
1: Fantastic. There were no other boats and nothing, nobody fishing the flats. And for permit, it was unbelievable because these permit had never seen an angler before. So there and was
2: w- there was bonefish permit and tarpon, or just permit. All, all of the above. All of the above. There was so
1: many tarpon it got tiresome. I mean, you, all you had to do was anchor in the in the uh, Garden Key Harbor, and uh, and cast a fly off the stern day or night at any time, and your chance of hooking up onto a nice tarpon was uh, close to a hundred percent.
2: What about sight fishing tarpon over there?
1: Oh, yes. Flats. We even sight fished goopers that came up on the rock flats.
2: Really? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And tarpon, just wonderful. I remember one day we were with Ganey. We called him Gamey because he would stop at a shrimper and get a whole bunch of... uh, Bycatch. uh, Bycatch. Yes. He'd shovel it off onto the foredeck. One night, we're sleeping on the boat in the Garden Key Harbor, and uh, uh, Eddie Bloomberg, who was one of our fishermen and a good friend, uh, also a doctor, he was sleeping on the upper bunk by an open window, and the rain came and washed some of that chum into his bunk, and all that. Well, Ganey, while we were fishing the next day, cleaned it all up, and for the next two weeks he stunk.
2: You can't get rid of that. <laughs> no, no, gamy.
1: Anyway, we were we were. Uh, he had a young kid as a mate. I don't remember his name. Nice kid, and we were all standing uh, on the flat uh, when a big tide came in and we're looking for uh, a tarpon, and not seeing any tarpon. Uh, uh, Titus coming in, and we had Jamie's skiff with us. Well, he took it back to the ship to get something for us to eat for lunch, so he's gone. We're on the flat, mile and a half away from the skiff. The water now is up above our waists, and it's coming up, I'm a short guy, but so it's coming up close to my chest, when all of a sudden, the uh, tremendous fin of a um, uh, hammerhead shark looked like it was about five feet high off the uh, off the uh, water, uh, and he's coming slowly right toward us. And there were four of us standing there together. Well, the kid, uh, the mate, was right next to me. He says, "I don't want to die. I don't want to die." I says, "Well." I said, come closer to me because he felt, but, but, but we were still pretty close together. The shark came right for us, and it passed between the kid and me so that I could feel its tail as it went past. Oh, my God. Never Lord. touched us.
0: Oh, my God. Never touched us. It's <sighs> crazy. But, well, before we get into the fishing, I just want to ask you a little bit. You've, you've had a number of issues with boats. Yes, I have. I mean, I, it, I mean, the list goes on and on about boats sunk. Engine fires, explosions, you got hit by a tornado, you and your father. Yes. And your good friend, uh, Bob Andrea. Bob Andrea. Yeah, tell me about that. Where were you? It was a Hughes, I think it was, right?
1: It was a Hughes uh, uh, bonefisher, a redfisher. No, it was my bonefisher before I bought a redfisher. Doesn't matter. We were out off West Content. We had already taken three permit on fly. It was one of those days. Beautiful, beautiful day in June. The perfect one. Hardly any breeze, perfect sight fishing, uh, fish that were willing, and no guides out there, nobody else. Is this know. the 70s
2: or 80s? This
1: was uh, in the late 70s, yeah. Right after uh, right after uh, Bob had uh, started making those skiffs. Right. Yeah. I've had four of them along the way because I love those uh, uh, used skiffs and I I would have him make them to my specifications and all. So I don't remember exactly which boat it was, doesn't matter. And we see um, not a funnel cloud, but a big black tornado out in the Gulf. And uh, we figured, you know, it's a perfect day, but this thing might be coming toward us. Bob Andre was with me, my dad and me, three of us. Uh, And um, this thing, this weather, started coming toward us slowly 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 and building and there was a huge tornado in it this is not a water spout oh we, we put up with water spouts uh, for years you know and we know how to avoid them uh, which is the way to handle a water spout right <laughs> uh well except for Jeffrey Cardenas, who you know that story sure. where he took his into it into it, I was there that day he took it into a water spout to see what would happen and survived it What happened? Uh, Nothing. (laughs) He was able to get in it, and uh, when you're in the middle of it, it's calm. And then he raced out of it, no damage.
0: But you guys got hit by this tornado. Oh
1: yeah, Uh, we pulled into the content passage. Uh, I then pulled up to West Content, and there was a mangrove tree with a uh, trunk about uh, almost, not quite, maybe about ten inches in diameter. Uh, and we tied up to that shallow water, and there's a sand beach there. It's where the old government tide marker that was put there for World War II was still there, and there was an eagle's nest on it. Oh, I remember that well. We didn't want to tie up to that because it's metal, and if a storm hits, sure, you're going to get pounded to pieces. This way, we got a sandbar, and my bow is on the sand. Tides coming in, and we're tied up to the tree, and we figured we're safe here. Well, that that. Tornado came into the content passage between East Content and West Content, turned like it had been programmed to do it, and came right for us. Well, the whole world uh, goes before you when that happens. It's dark. The wind is more than you can imagine. Uh, It was a wet tornado with rain, and uh, uh, it came upon us, knocked down this big mangrove tree that we were tied to, uh, threw me about fifty feet in one direction, and Bob about thirty feet in the other direction, and uh, just—it seemed like the end of the world. You don't know which end is up. You don't know whether you're alive or not. And it passed quickly, went on to uh, knock 'em down, Key, which is well named because it knocked down a bunch of trees <laughs> there. Then, then we later found out that it went across to Kaju Key, took some roofs off some houses, and went out into the Gulf Stream. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, uh, my dad stayed in the boat. Why? Because the tree had fallen under my push pole tower, which prevented it from killing Pop. But it had landed uh, uh, softly because it had hit the t- tr- the, the push pole tower first right. and hit him in the head, knocked his head down into the dish of my steering wheel. and uh, And now the tide's going out and there's blood everywhere. We figured the old man's dead. Well, he wasn't. He just had a bloody nose and was pissed. He was, he was,
0: he was pinned.
1: Pissed. <laughs> pinned and pinned pissed. Pinned and pissed. Yeah. Get me
0: out of here, you know. What, t- tell me about your relationship with your dad, Pop Hill.
1: It was sterling in every way. He was the most wonderful guy in the world as far as I was concerned. Picture this. He's a principal of a school in Flushing, New York, and the Japs uh, hit Pearl Harbor. Uh, My wife was there at the time, but that's another story. Uh, uh, And uh, as soon as that happened, he went and signed up and came home in a military uh, uniform without even telling my mother. He signed up right then and there, next day.
0: That's an American uh, war hero.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he spent the rest of the time in in the Navy uh, and... uh, Uh, which is another story, and uh, 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 never went to either front because uh, the Admiral uh, at the Merchant Marine Academy at uh, Kings Point uh, wanted him there in the office, and so he worked with Admiral Tombstone, uh, an unfortunate name, but a nice guy, uh, all during the war. Whereas my uh, wife's uh, father uh, went in as a buck private and at the end of the war was a bird colonel uh, getting promotion after promotion uh, in the uh, Japanese theater, uh, and uh, that's another story. He was Air Force, right? And that's why my wife was at Hickam Field when the Japs uh, uh, hit. Well, Hickam Field is just one uh, link fence, chain link fence from uh, Pearl Harbor, so they saw it all. Wow! And the Jap planes uh, she describes would fly over. And uh, sometimes they'd be so low that she could see, she was seven years old, she could see the uh, uh, expression on the uh, pilots' faces as they came by. Wow. And uh, uh, the kids would run out not not knowing what this is all about. They were kids, seven years old. Oh, right. They'd pick up pieces of the bombs, and she still has a couple of those pieces. Wow. Yeah. But that's another story. But but
0: you had a great fishing relationship with your dad, and he had a very famous fly, the Pop Hill Special.
1: Uh, no, he had it. Right. I he, want to give him all the credit for it because of what. But he made. De- he designed that yes. that fly, and that story deserves to be told if you want to hear. it. Yeah, no, would love for sure. to. We had the Big Daddy, which was the name of my uh, my Carolina hull. But uh, all your boats were Big Daddy. Yeah. How'd you come up with that name? Because I'm a Big Daddy. I got seven kids. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. <laughs> How apropos. Then we figured out what was causing it, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Who, well, anyway, uh, he, he was the perfect father as far as I was concerned. I loved him, and so did my brother Dave and my brother Malcolm. Uh, he was just wonderful. Uh, he took us fishing whenever he went. He never went, once he had young boys like you and you, he never went fishing without taking us, uh, you know? And we fished all over Long Island. And my grandfather had been a, uh, uh, a very active trout fisherman in England before he came to the States as a teenager. And uh, 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 they were both uh, consummate fly fishermen. And uh, uh, they wanted uh, us kids to learn too. So, as I told you before, I learned before I remember getting any lessons. Sure, he'd let me make mistakes and then teach me by saying, "You want to know how to avoid that?" That sort of thing. Right, which is what I'm. I did for years with my grandson John, who uh, is uh, 21. So, what was the Pop Hill special? Pop Hill special. Okay, we're uh, leading up to it. Uh, we had my mothership, and uh, I had a flats boat on the foredeck with a davit and we were on the backside of Andros and Pop had had a radical neck dissection, uh, just a couple of weeks before for cancer and it cured cancer and that's not what he died of, thank God. But he was just post-surgery and he couldn't cast, but he sure didn't want to miss the strip. So he had just had his bandages off and all, and uh, that's the way Pop was. And uh, remind me, and I'll tell you another story of uh, why I think he was the the cat's ass. Uh, okay, we're out there, and we're all bone fishing on the backside of Andros, uh, you know, the west side, on the flat, and uh, now of course I couldn't get the big daddy in close to the flat because it drew five and a half feet. Sure. When we got to about six feet, we put over the hook, and put over the, uh, uh, the skiff. And we had a couple of ca- guests aboard uh, too, and they were um, uh, all fishing in different places. And I was waiting with Pop near the shore. Uh, and Pop couldn't fish, but he, he stayed with me. And he stood still as a post and he said, Gordy, he says, why don't you walk off here because they're seeing you. I says, who's seeing what? She says, the bonefish, they see you, you're moving around. Yeah, I'm fishing. Had a little argument over right. it. Now, he can't fish, man. so he stood there and observed like a post. And I moved off to stay out of his way, and he stood as still as a post, and he could do that and just observed. Now, he's in water less than two feet deep. Might have been a foot deep. And he's absolutely still purposely because he wants to watch the bonefish feed. And And when you're absolutely motionless, not even hardly breathing, uh, they'll come right up to your feet almost in wild areas like that and he noticed that every time a bonefish uh, Saw a little puff in the sand he'd go and a fee- and feed sometimes tail up and There'd be another puff and another bonefish would do the same thing He couldn't see what they were what they were eating but these little puffs, you know That's powder sand there right kind of like white Bay at Great Exuma or powder white sand snow white snow white sand Fine, right? You know, and uh, I came back and, and said, "Pop, it's about time for lunch." He says, "Yeah, I got to go back to the boat." I says, uh, uh, "Well, I think he can pee here." You know, he he says, "I I, I I've got to do something." We go we we go back to the uh, uh, skiff and take the skiff back to the Big Daddy, and he gets out and he's so excited that uh, uh, he uh, uh, didn't have lunch. Uh, and we went back out and he had a little bait net. What he wanted to do was to scoop to see what these little creatures were that were making the puff. And he scooped several of them up and they're little, they're not shrimp, but they're shrimp like copepods or, or or something like that. But they're not shaped like shrimp. And they're just under the surface. And uh, uh, every now and then they puff, whether they're breathing or eating or moving. I don't know, but he had several of them and every time he'd see the puffs, he'd scoop with that little bait net and he'd come up with the same things. He figured, if I could tie a fly that does that, it doesn't have to look like that, but if it makes that puff, uh, maybe the bonefish will go for that fly. So he, uh, he made me stop fishing and, and help him back to the uh, Big Daddy because he couldn't wait to tie a fly and what he did was to take a little stainless steel hook i think it was a number 4 uh monofilament body and two hackles that were straight up hook point down why he wanted to make a little plow right see and the idea was to to put that out there put the rod tip in the sand with a with a uh, intermediate sink line and uh, do that with it make a puff and it did just that that little hook point made a puff that looked just like the puffs that the uh, bonefish were feeding on.
2: So that the hook would drag in the sand and right. make that little yeah. puff. The plow. Yeah,
1: exactly, little plow. And, uh, of course, I could cast, and he couldn't, so he he um, uh, asked me to try it. And I said, hey, Pop, that's not a bonefish fly. The hook's up, but he's got to be up. No, he says, there's a reason for this, and I'll explain it to you later. So I went and made a couple of puffs, boom, hooked up, boom hooked up again, boom, hooked up again. It worked like magic.
0: Wow. That's so ingenious. Yeah. But yeah. you were telling me earlier, when you walked into the, the poon house, you looked at our flies, we are starting to talk about about the worm hatch and the palola worm and hatches. Tell that story and about what you've seen here in the Bahia Honda area, the lower keys, about worms and hatching and what you did back then to make the worm swim perfectly straight. And what you noticed with divers under the water.
1: Uh, Andy, before I do that, and I will, I'd like to tell you just a little bit more about the Pop Hill Fly. Okay. Uh, because when I showed it to Lefty, who was a good <laughs> friend of mine, uh, he says, you know, it doesn't look like a bonefish, Gordon. Uh, you know how Lefty used to yeah. be. He, he says, all right, I'll, if you say it's that good, I'll put it in my book. Well, he did, and with the first printing, he he did like he like they do with all bonefish flies, and shows the hook point up. I got on the phone. and said, Lefty, that's not going to fly. <laughs> so that's, he so
2: he changed it in the illustration. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. He stopped the printing and put it down after I explained to him exactly how it worked.
0: What was your relationship like with Lefty?
1: Um, very very good. He was a dear friend. Uh, 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 I'd go up there and cast with him at Cockeysville, Maryland to learn everything that he had to teach. Uh, I had, um, I knew how to cast. I, I didn't need any lessons, you know. Right. But even so, I like to know how other people do things. So I spent uh, a couple of weeks with Joan Wolf up in New York. Uh, she and I became the best of friends. Oh, gee, I, I remember we, uh, last year, we um, well, I was in her class to see how she taught, not how to cast, right. I knew how to cast, but to see how she taught. And she said, uh, she didn't know me at that point, and she had us introducing one another, as you do in a classroom, and she and she says, well, Dr. Hill, uh, uh, how come you're here? And uh, I told her, well, I wanna see how you do it. I'm a dear friend of Lefty's. You won't do well in this class. You know Joan. (laughs) Oh, do you?
0: I do know Joan. Okay, wonderful person. Yes.
1: You're not going to do well in that. Well, everybody is looking at me and looking at her. And I said, well, uh, Joan, I know the story about you and Lefty and uh, and your husband's uh, white uh, uh, striped marlin. And uh, the day he caught that, I happened to be in Ecuador. So we'll discuss that. You know that story.
0: I think I do. I think Lefty told me that story. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, let's go there. Let's go there right now. Well, tell me about uh, about Mister Wolf's white marlin.
1: Yeah. Well, he was out there with a captain that I know in Ecuador very well, named Gomez, out of uh, uh, out of uh, uh, Salinas, uh, fishing off the uh, Punta Santa Elena, and. Uh, uh, Back in those days, the striped marlin were everywhere. Uh, I had been there a couple of years before, and we would take the panga out and uh, find a school of them tailing and then cast to them just like you do to tarpon. Wow. Not the trolling method using the teaser and all that. Right. Uh, But uh, most people were using that method with teasers. Were
0: they eating well? Oh, very well. Free casting.
1: No problem. They take a fly like right now. Uh, That's another story. But but, but anyway, Lee, but
0: Lee Wolf's record was very scrutinized, if I'm not mistaken.
1: That's one
2: word that could be used. <laughs> uh, so I don't know the story. I'd love to hear it.
1: Uh, okay, well, uh, he was uh, with a couple of uh, guys, uh, including an attorney who, who I just assumed not named from Miami, a well-known attorney, and um, he caught that fish, no question about it. I was there at the time. I know he caught it. The, uh, the word was, uh, did that boat come out of gear before he made the cast or did it not? Oh. And I can't tell you whether it did or not. But uh, one of the uh, attorneys who was with him uh, would not, uh, he would verify the catch, but he would not verify that it had been caught under strict IGFA rules. And it became a super issue. Right. Now, have you talked to Lefty about this?
0: I did speak to Lefty. So did I. A number of years ago. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And then you know that story where if he told you the same story he told me, Lefty said, You know, I'm not a wealthy man. And Lee Wolf is. And Lee Wolf came in and said, If you don't okay this, even though it didn't have the signature, I'm going to sue you for all you're worth. And uh, uh, Lefty admits that, or admitted that he caved in and okayed it. In the meantime, that uh, fish is still uh, at Joan Wolf's school mounted on the back wall of her, her uh, classroom there.
0: Wow. I mean, what, what a legacy Joan Wolf and Lee had.
1: Now let's get back to Joan Wolf for a minute if I may. Yes. Out in the, uh, uh, so she, now she looks me as a, at me as a pariah. I'm a lefty guy and she doesn't cast like Lefty. Now, the truth is in subsequent years, I've had Lefty on my platform many, many times. I've had Joan on my platform many times. I've cast with both of them again and again. I'm here to tell you, when Joan is on my uh, uh, skiff uh, in the salt, she casts just like Lefty. When Lefty is trout fishing on a little stream, he casts just like Joan. But each one has to have his or her raison d'etre, and they're pushing a concept. Right. You see?
0: (laughs) Yeah, when you get out there in fishing conditions, the cast varies depending on the wind, the direction, all of that.
2: Exactly. For sure. But at the same time, there's simple steps to improve that cast into the wind, or whether it's a backhand cast or forehand cast, like stop the rod. Well, that's
0: right? all the same thing. You yeah. had to double haul, you had to stop the rod, you had to turn the leader over, you know. Yeah. Uh, t- let's go with uh, um, Joe Brooks. Joe Brooks was like the grandfather of saltwater fly fishing, if I'm not I mistaken. I think so. Right? Now, you, and you, you caught your first bonefish on the same flat you yes, caught his Yes, first I bonefish. did. I did that purposely. Where was I, that flat?
1: Uh, outside of Bud and Mary's on the ocean on side. On the ocean side. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about between that rela- there and tea table.
0: right. Tell me about that relationship with uh, with joe brooks and and your father and grandfather and yourself.
1: Well, they just uh, knew each other. they were of of uh,
0: same vintage
1: and all and both were super interested in saltwater fly fishing and nobody else was. We never saw another person i just I just finished rereading that uh, Kemp's Hyla. Uh, uh, Heilner's book on saltwater fishing, which was originally written in 1937. And uh, then uh, uh, Van Kemp Heilner, uh, and had all kinds of uh, descriptions of every kind of saltwater fishing you can imagine. And uh, uh, he never even mentions saltwater fly casting or saltwater fly fishing. And it's an exhaustive book. Wow. Yeah. As an example, we never saw anybody with a fly rod before in the salt. And we were all over Long Island.
0: Right. Uh, so you know, were the first striper fisherman up there.
1: Uh, the first as far as I know. Right. Now maybe somebody can come and prove to me that he was first. Right. I don't know. So so it, it, it was a thing. Now one day we're walking along the beach on Long Island Sound toward Horton's Point, which is a rocky point at uh uh, above Mattatuck, uh, east of Mattatuck, at um, uh, 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 on the north shore of Long Island, and uh, we're all walking along. Uh, I'm a little kid, uh, six, about six years old, and I have uh, my grandfather's uh, bamboo rod and a Joe Brooks uh, uh, fly that uh, I think he later called the Honey Blonde. Uh, uh, and um, I can't wait to make any cane I have six-year-old kids. So sure. I'm running along ahead of them. And the two of them are coming up behind me because they can't keep <laughs> up with a six-year-old kid. And there were some surf casters there. And they looked like they'd been there all night. All this stuff was back in the, uh, in the rocks and all. And they were throwing big plugs. And the stripers were uh, not real big ones, you know, about 10-pounders. And they were feeding in the wash. Well, that was about the time they were pulling the plug out of the water. And then they make a long cast again. They couldn't figure why they weren't getting anything. And uh, I I walked past the first surf fisherman. And he looks back at me and says, uh, Hey, kid, what are you going to do with that thing? Uh, Meaning my fly rod. Well, I'm a little kid and I'm embarrassed. I just look down at the sand. Joe Brooks comes right up. And he says, Just watch him. So I got between a couple of the uh, uh, surf casters. I may have made three or four casts, and I hooked a nice striper and landed him. And uh, Joe comes up, picks up the uh, striper, and holds it up to show the guys. And I felt about 10 feet tall. <laughs> <Of course. laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. That, that's basically the story.
0: Who, uh, who were your heroes, if you had any, or mentors in your early years?
1: Uh, Joe and my father and my grandfather.
0: And those were your formative years. How about when you got down here to Key West? Who were the players down here then, the guides and some of the anglers? There
1: weren't any, as far as I was concerned. Yeah, I taught the guides. They didn't teach me. Uh, first of all, uh, the only guide, a flats guide, was, uh, was um, uh, Ganey Maxwell. And he he eventually gave up uh, his skiff. Uh, it was known as the name of the boat was the Jet Stream. It was a little jet boat. Right. Uh, he gave that up and started uh, guiding from his big hatteras, uh, pulling uh, guys skiffs out to uh, uh, west of Key West to the Marquesas and all uh, uh, the quicksands. There's some wonderful fishing there.
2: So, so tell me about the stories about when you came down here to Big Pine and you were trying to figure out uh, sight fishing for oceanside tarpon or backcountry tarpon with worms. You know wh- what were the flies you were using, and and that was an exploration period just on your own correct you didn't fish sure. with guides no you, you I, learned I, this all on your own
1: yeah uh uh i'll get to that uh but uh, the first real guide to come down here to key west was uh, bob montgomery right and he was a great guy uh, uh and then second was uh, gene montgomery his uh, brother uh, gene was more interested in fishing 23 uh, footer deep fees offshore than than uh, than uh, uh, fishing the flats, whereas Bob uh, uh, continued on the flats. And uh, we helped uh, those guys out with what we had already learned. We learned by doing. Now, you asked me about the flies. These are flies that probably don't resemble anything you fish with, except that one you showed me when we first came in. A little shrimp pattern. Yeah, a little if you can call it a shrimp pattern, it's or a critter. Yeah. Critter. <laughs> <laughs> it's a critter. Yeah. And, and, uh, uh, and we used, uh, uh, long hackle orange flies and all long hackle black flies and just experimented. My father would, was a great fly tire. And after he retired, I'd be uh, putting hips in people and doing other orthopedic surgery. I did a lot of spine fusions too. And, um, he would be retired and he'd be at my home in my den where I had a whole fly tying setup, tying flies. Why my place? Because we had a Olympic-sized swimming pool there and uh, he could get in the pool with his fly. He'd put the fly on a little leader and all. He'd dive with it because he always wanted to see what it did when you pulled it when you're down underwater with that fly. That was his thing, uh, to make it look like a critter or, uh, or just something that just irresistible, uh, you know, like the flare of a, sure. a you know, uh, the feather
0: split feather, feather
1: split feather, that sort of thing. But he'd have to see it himself, and then we'd go and try them out. And that was why. I'll give you one example. We were out off Cosgrove when they used to have the Cosgrove light there, off the Marquesas, just south of the Marquesas, and there were there was a, a hatch of young yellowtails, and they were big yellowtail snapper eating their own young. Wow. and we tried all kinds of uh, of, uh, of uh, flies that we had been catching yellowtails on They wouldn't take them uh, including the simple uh, yellow bucktail fly so this is how pop would think he 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 scooped up one of those juvenile uh maybe an inch long uh, 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 fry a uh, uh, juvenile sure. uh, yellowtails and he said if, if you forget they're eating that so he took, and he took a sharp knife, put it on my cooler, and took and gave it a buzz cut, boom, right right behind the hook and it looked just like one of those little things and it was exactly the right size. And we caught all kinds of yellowtail on that. Wow. And talk about match the hatch. Yes. Right. And That's that's the kind of fly tire he was. He would make up things. Uh, and, and, and I followed suit. I can remember my first... To, uh, uh, peacock bass. It was in Florida uh, at my daughter's home on one of the lakes in w- west of, uh, of uh, uh, Hollywood where she lived. And here was a beautiful, nice peacock bass just sitting there. And uh, I had my fly rod in the car and I ran and got no flies. So I took a, a hook and, and, a, and a pipe cleaner and uh, a piece of, uh, of uh, a kitchen sponge put it on there, and just wound it real quick, and uh, figured, now that looks like a critter. I made one cast and took an eight-pound peacock. Wow. Uh, You see, because of Pop's training. Sure. That's the way he did things. Right. If if he'd take a nap, he's a lot like Lefty. Lefty always took a nap on the foredeck, and he'd only have one thing to eat for lunch, nothing else, a peanut butter sandwich. And Pop was the same way, he'd take a nap. Now, we all knew, uh, the guys in my fishing club, uh, Pop and I were members and for uh, the beginning, uh, Ferd Hebe was president and then I was president for a little while, but that doesn't matter. Anyway, uh, they would uh, all notice that if Pop got up from his nap and he stretched and he looked around and surveyed, if he didn't take a rod and make a cast, you weren't going to catch any fish. If he got up and he looked around and suddenly wanted to grab his rod, you better start fishing because he's seen something that you didn't. Right. That kind of
0: thing. He was fishy, as they say. Yeah,
1: fishy, fishy. And that's the way Lefty has always been.
2: Right. Tell me about your
1: first worm hatch. I was with Ted Jurassic. You know Ted. Yes. Uh, He was a member of our fishing club. And uh, I'll say that when he got up to uh, talk with his Hungarian accent, uh, even if he was serious, he'd have the guys slapping their knees and laughing. Wonderful guy. Now you got this spinning rod, you guys, and you got to listen to me because if the roller don't roll, you ain't going to catch no fish.
0: <laughs> and they're that's all so, that's so well
2: done.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, he and I have been friends for half a lifetime. Uh, any, anyway. Um, <laughs> He he had a lot of experience fishing Montauk, uh, too. And his first business was at, uh, was out on Long Island uh, at Ronkonkoma out there. He had a great big factory with uh, 200 and more workers. And, wow. Yeah. And he came from Hungary with $8 in his pocket. Sure. And a brilliant guy. Brilliant guy. Never had a college education or anything, but one of the smartest people I've ever met. He's worth millions now, yeah, as you probably sure. know. Yeah. And that's through his mind. Right. Uh, one of the things he invented, as you probably know, is a flexible stainless steel pipe that the oil companies bought.
0: Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I can only imagine what that patent's worth. Who knows? Yeah, right. And a
1: bright guy and a wonderful man. Yeah, for sure. Wonderful man. Anyway, uh, so we're getting to the war match, believe it or not. We were on what we call the Kawasaki, which was uh, is the white flat uh, right on the ocean side of Bahia Honda with the little uh, rocky island that used to have terns uh, uh, nesting there. Now they don't because the public has right. walked. The reason we called it the Kawasaki was because we stopped fishing it when the Kawasaki jet skis would go back and forth. There's no purpose in being there. Right. But that was before the jet skis. So we we're, were there and... Uh, It's uh, getting to be evening, and all of a sudden, uh, we see some commotion in the water, and we see these little critters swimming by, and it was Teddy who first announced it. He said, it's a worm hatch! (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
2: It's a worm hatch! (laughs) So you you guys weren't there looking for the worm hatch. You just stumbled upon it. We didn't know about it. Yeah, right. No. uh, It turns out that Al Fluga knew about it.
1: And Al was a good friend and I I fished with Al many times and Al was a fantastic uh, uh, fly fisherman. Uh, Pop and I were out there in our skiff and we watched him land his world record at Atlantic uh, big eye tuna. Years later uh, on 12 pound test, years later I had the 12 pound tippet record for the Pacific big eye tuna, but that's another story. So it's all since been, you know, Going by the way, because one thing about world records is they're always beaten. For sure. Yeah, It's it's just the way it is, and I'm not interested in trying for another.
0: Although you have one that will probably stand for the rest of time, possibly.
1: Nothing stands for the rest of time. Yeah. I'm a big boy. Yeah, Uh, you know the difference. I I know the story. But but you
0: caught a 15-pound, 4-ounce bonefish that has been in the record book since 1997. Exactly. However. It's hard to find those big bonefish now. Wait
1: a minute. However, uh, I have caught five fish larger than that,
0: okay? On a certified scale. When was the last time you caught one of those, though?
1: Oh, it was uh, 2001. Yeah. And 2001. that was right before
0: the big freeze, when a lot of those bonefish died.
1: Well, uh, quite a bit before. It was The big freeze was in 2010. Right. That was, and, and past, you know, I, I live just below the no-name Key Bridge. On the outside, there right. on the point, and uh, 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 I've caught five fish larger than the fifteen-pound fish, uh, but never sixteen. Almost, but bigger than the one that I got. Right. But I didn't have everything you need. The witness, uh, uh, you the know, scale. I do a lot of fishing alone. Right. Uh, I know. I know what I catch. I know what it weighs. I. Uh, used to, I don't anymore, but I used to carry a uh, certified uh, uh, scale with me, I had it checked regularly at our fishing club, I had it checked at IGFA, so I know what the weights were. Sure. Uh, also, I uh, in my old age, I don't want to kill fish. Right. We used to bring tarpon, slide them in the boat, take all kinds of pictures and everything. Right. We don't do anything like that anymore. No.
0: Neither do we. Well, let's go back to the, uh, the worm hatch.
1: Okay. So here we see these little worms.
0: We feel, what?
1: And Ted has just announced it. But we see this more commotion out to the right on what we now call the worm bank, which is on the other side of the channel. Right. Uh, Bahia the Channel. Well, we went out there and uh, made a few casts with uh, orange uh, uh, splayed tackle uh, uh, tarpon flies. Didn't resemble a worm. In, at all. But back then they'd hit almost anything. Right. Because there's, there's no other boats there or anything. And uh, we jumped four or five fish, landed one, and uh, then it started to get dark and we went home. Pretty simple.
0: Right. But you also told me about you had some friends that were diving and you sent divers down. What oh. did they see?
1: Yeah, this was a couple of years later uh, uh, and uh, uh, several years later. And uh, uh, we noticed that, uh, that first of all, the, the worms would always come from the, uh, f- uh, from the northeast with an outgoing tide and during that time, before they start coming the other way, they would have their tails up and their heads down. And we figured there must be something going on down there. So we put Dick Saul and a couple of the other guys in my fishing club uh, who had uh, uh, tanks put them down under the boat uh, with the idea of observing, seeing what happens, and what they saw was very simple. They would see all of a sudden uh, when you were near the, the, behind a channel, not if you were way far away from it, but when you were near the edge of the channel, the western edge, uh, you would see uh, a ball of uh, these uh, worms. Of course, they're not worms, they're epitokes the tail, the gametes, sexual gametes of the palola
0: worm. So they break off.
1: Yeah, but they would all do it at once and there'd be a ball of them. And then all of a sudden a tarpon's mouth would uh, come near and he'd just suck them all up. Then he'd come up to the surface and you'd see the tarpon. Maybe he'd roll, maybe he wouldn't. And it happened again and again and again. Now, now and then we'd see a tarpon take one worm on the surface. But that's not what they were doing for the most part. And biologically it made sense to us. Because if a tarpon has to use more energy to catch one worm than he gets from eating it, biologically, that makes no sense at all. Right. Uh, and so it figured. And because of that, what we started doing was using intermediate sinking lines, clear lines. Uh, back then, sometimes these were lines we made ourselves, but that's another story. You know in Flip Pallet's book where he describes Gus him and Lefty and Sosin and those guys, a uh, sanding monofilament, monofilament to make. right. Hell, we, we figured that. It'd take all night to do that. Uh, and how are you going to get the taper right? So what we did was to just make a 30-foot-long tapered leader. Now, that's a head, you see, with a monofilament running line behind it. Yeah, it had knots, but you had that out of the rod tip. Right. By the time you cast it, you could make one of them in, uh, in 15 minutes.
0: So, what was the, how heavy was the monofilament that was on the reel?
1: Uh, the, the, yeah. We, that
0: you were casting? We, you, we you, called that the running line. Yeah. And how heavy was that?
1: We would experiment, but we, we came to the conclusion that 30 pound test was a good average.
0: Right. So, tell me about your fly design with the snail knot and making the worm swim right. and using that sinking line.
1: Uh, we we wanted the worm to be as natural-looking as possible and to be as natural-looking as possible it had to swim like a worm. And uh, if you used an eye and a loop on there, it would go back and forth. didn't resemble the way worms swim at all. Uh, so what we started doing was, uh, uh, and we're not the only one that did it, because I have to be honest to uh, tell you that Gordon Baggett, you know who he is.
0: No, I don't.
1: Okay. Right now, he's at uh, Kudjoe Key, and he runs a uh, a guide service there. And uh, those guys are probably out, well, I don't know, it's pretty windy, but they're probably out right now. He's got uh, several guides. And uh, uh, he uh, uh, was the one who put us onto that. It wasn't my invention. Uh, Where you tie the uh, tippet, the... uh, uh, it's the bite tippet, but it's not a bite tippet. It's a uh, piece of, uh, of light tippet if you, if you really want to get a strike, uh, like 10-pound test or less, and you tie it uh, onto the hook before you tie the fly. Then curl it up if it's, if it's heavy, like if you want to land a fish, you'd use 40-pound test uh, and even fluorocarbon. And then you'd wind it up until you've got a, uh, a roll of leader by tippet that's about an inch in diameter, so that you can get your bobbin over it and wind that uh, uh, the shaft of the hook onto the or vice versa the, the the end of the the tippet onto the hook. Then you tie the fly. I mean, you can do that because the, the, now the bobbin will go around that. Sure. Then you untangle it. Put the when you finish the trick is to, um, to on my fly tying desk and on my skiff. I have a, a stainless strap on the console. I hook the hook onto that, and I pull on it, especially if it's fluorocarbon. And then I take my fingers after stretching it and go back and forth to heat it up. Heat it up and get it straight. Uh, heat it up, yeah, and then hold it while it cools. Uh, that's the end of the secret. And now you gotta straight tippet. Right. And just, it just just takes a few seconds. But Pop figured that out, not me.
2: But the idea of snelling snelling the hook instead of the loop knot was just so the worm would swim straight.
1: Pull straight. You have control of how it does it.
2: So you were actually fishing for these tarpon during the worm
0: hatch up on that bar, almost like nymph fishing, the tarpon, where you get the the worm down off that bar where they were hatching and trying to catch these fish that were kind of like head down, gulping the masses. Here's my thought.
1: And I can't prove it. I think that if I slowly retrieved it, like you might a nymph or let the current take it, but just keep up with it, keep up with it, uh, that maybe my uh, fly with that, uh, that leader, that, that straight leader, might get into a ball. Right. And, and the fish was eating the ball and happens to get my fly.
0: Were you pretty successful with that technique?
1: Very successful. Yeah, Brandon Henley just called, he's a guide here on Big Pine. And he just called me, uh, right now he's fishing a spot that I know very well in the Virgin Islands, and that's another story. But he, uh, I said, Gordy, he says, uh, I remembered your story about uh, fishing them with the uh, with the uh, 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 slow sink transparent line. And I was out at the worm hash the other night with my uh, client and nobody uh, was catching a fish and uh, uh, I did exactly what you told me to do and let that sink and then just bring it along uh, near the bottom. Now, and then you sl- snag the bottom and then you wish you hadn't. Yeah. But, uh, and he said, my client got 120 pounder. Wow. Nobody else caught a fish. And you always, you, you told
2: us right this, when you this, walked This is in, just a few days ago. Right. And you told us, you know, before the podcast started that you always cast it up current and yeah. you stripped it down current. Because yeah. worms
0: f- swim with the.
1: This is what tide. I mean by keeping up with it. Because you don't want to fly here in a belly of loose line. Sure. Uh, so you 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 retrieve at about the speed that the current is going, which is judgment.
2: And you also told us that there are worm hatches that take place in the winter.
1: Did I say that? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Can you talk a little
0: bit the about se- that? The secret is out.
1: Yeah, it's very simple. I fish tarpon all year round, half for many years. I don't just fish during uh, tarpon season. And it's more of a thrill during the winter because you gotta find them. And now what I like, what gives me my jollies is to be alone in the boat, nobody else, and I'm I'm spending the day finding fish. I might start at uh, six in the morning or five, running out on a dawn patrol. Uh, uh, You know when you run out to the back country at Big Pine here Mm -hmm. and you see those stakes yeah. I put them all out there. Really? Yeah. My father and I did that many years ago, and we put uh, light reflector tape on them. Just and like all.
0: Mark up in Naila Murata. And- exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Except we did it before he did it. Oh, uh, of course. <laughs> You're 90. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I mean, that, that was very uh, ingenious of uh, you guys. Uh, yeah, because we'd run out. I'd get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, uh, hop in the skiff, uh, And uh, go out, no breakfast, because I'm going to eat that when I come back. Right. And uh, uh, I want to be out there, but I want to get out there safely. I've seen some hellacious things on the way out. Because sometimes uh, I'll be running out and I see some disturbance in the water. And it might be uh, halfway out there where my stakes still are. I stop and watch, put my flashlight out there. And I've got a big, bright flashlight. And uh, every now and then, even during the winter... I'll see worms. Now there, it's not at dusk the way it is off Bahia Honda. It's uh, it's early in the morning. Well, what do you think? I stop and fish. Sorry. Sometimes get a fish before I get out to any of the, my honey holes out, out in the contents.
2: And these are palola worms?
1: Yeah.
0: Yep. When did you first see this?
1: Back in the 70s.
0: Do you know of anybody else that has recognized that hatch?
1: Not that I know of, and I, and I haven't broadcast it. Right. Now that I'm 90, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I Definitely. want to help other people catch fish.
0: Right. Well, the Contents were a very special place for you and your father. And when, when he passed, he wanted his ashes spread out there in the Contents. Exactly. Tell me about the Contents and the relationship with you guys.
1: Well, we would fish all around the Contents. That was our favorite uh, uh, venue uh, now on the content. There's a long white spot. Uh, there's some deep water that used to have uh, tarpon in it right up next to the shore where the mangroves are. Now we don't see so many tarpon there, even during tarpon season, although occasionally you do. But it fans out to a uh, very shallow bar on the west side there. And we would uh, uh, we would anchor the boat, always two anchors, because we almost lost a skiff one time with one anchor. I learned that the hard way almost, and we always used two anchors, or an anchor and a push-pull, but always two methods of of securing the skiff. Then we'd wade that flat, and uh, that was my father's favorite flat, because the bonefish had come across there and they would eat, and they were big. Uh, That was my favorite. Well, uh, on the rock bar, before you get to there, that's where I've taken many guys to catch their first permit on fly. Because for some reason, when they come around that corner and they hit that rock bar, they're looking for food on the incoming tide, not the outgoing. My largest permit there on my my own scale, it's a 50-pound scale, was 42 pounds.
0: Wow. Yeah. And the world record by Del Brown and Steve Huff on 8-pound test is 42.
1: Yeah, I know. Well, but you also
0: caught a really big tarpon. I mean, from what I understand, you caught like a two hundred pound tarpon on twelve pound test off of Bullfrog, Bullfrog Bank. Is oh that no!
1: Oh, oh no! No, that's not true. I caught that fish in Homosassa. A two
0: hundred pounder on twelve? No, it wasn't two hundred. You caught a one sixty-one in on Homosassa. Yes. For, well, for some reason, I, I got my notes wrong. But I never caught a two hundred pounder. Right. Well, Peter lied. Peter
2: Lammy. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Peter lied. <laughs> Tell me about so Joe oh, Brooks. Oh,
1: okay. G- okay, okay, off Belford Bank. Now I know what the story.
0: Because it, it, he because the note says that you hooked a two hundred pound fish at six p.m. and landed it at one in the morning.
1: That's true, but the truth is we don't know what it weighed. Right. Because it's uh, one o'clock or one one ten in the morning, and uh, we're we're. Uh, So tired, we didn't even put, we didn't even tape it out. But looking at him, we think it could have gone 200 pounds. But the truth is, I don't know that. Right. But it was the biggest top one I've ever
0: seen. And you've seen a lot of big ones.
1: And I don't know why a shark didn't get it with all those hours of fighting.
0: Right. Well, you also, you know, so Joe Brooks caught a 148 with Stu Apt. Then Stu Apt broke his record with like a 150 something did you break Stu's record? Was that an official record, that no. 161 you caught in Homosassa?
1: No. Why? Because I wasn't interested in uh, in records at the time. Killing a fish. Yeah. But let me tell you about that fish. Because this goes back to the early 60s. There was no uh, fishery there for big tarpon, except for Anthony Weston Dimick, who uh, years and years before had caught a tarpon at the mouth of the Homosassa River from his canoe. Right. And you probably read all about the, that. The Book of Tarpon. Yeah. But the guides there, uh, they were fishing for other species mostly, and they were bait fishermen. There weren't no fly fishermen there back then that I knew of, at right. least. Uh, uh, so I, I had a boat that I had built. It was a uh, 20-foot uh, uh, skiff with uh, a... Palmer inboard gasoline engine with an updraft carburetor that made in Cooscob, Connecticut. And I had made that when I was in the Army uh, in my backyard. Uh, And we brought it to New York after I got out of the Army and uh, uh, had it uh, uh, fished on Long Island, caught all kinds of fish there. But then when I came to Florida in 1962, I brought it down with me. Uh, we decided we'd explore the west coast of Florida, which we did in that boat. It was a pain in the neck because it was a, an inboard screw with a skeg, and I kept hitting bottom and all that. I knew I had to get rid of that boat. We figured we'd go up, maybe find some deeper water around Tampa, which we did. We didn't find the tarpon around Tampa till we got to Boca Grande. And, of course, uh, you know that story. They're all in the past there. And- sure, sure. And it wasn't the kind of fishing we wanted to do. So we moved up further to Homosassa. We stayed at Mary's Fish Camp there, which is really a a trailer camp. Right. Uh, rented one of her trailers. And we put that in the, uh, at, at the little river there, which was the Wekiwachi, and went out off Homosassa. We never got to uh, Black Rock or any of the we were probably on what later became known as Oklahoma. Right. And you know what that
0: is. Sure, the white sand flats out there. Yeah,
1: you could call it a flat, but it was the average depth was three or four feet. Right. Uh and good for tarpon. Not a bonefish flat. But you know, it had those outcroppings of rock and every now and then my rudder or reel would a wheel would hit that and we'd think, Oh boy. So we didn't travel very fast. We just put put it along and uh, uh, then we decided to uh, uh, see if we could find some tarpon. And the way we did it was to just drift. And along comes a school of tarpon. I'd never seen tarpon that big before. Well, I casted them, and uh, it, it was before we knew about bite tippets. So, of course, you know what happens. Every fish that uh, I hooked, I lost. Uh, I was fishing with a uh, uh, a 12-weight bamboo rod bamboo 12 weight bamboo rod very flexible i was using a hardy marquee trout reel because it had a rim drag
0: the music too
1: yeah and we loved the hardy screech when a bonefish it was just great i can remember ted jurassic uh, uh Chiding me about that. He says, Gordy, what do you want to fish with that crap for? We got real reels. You know? <laughs> I just, because I love that screech. He says, You're crazy. <laughs> like one time we, I was fishing that and Ted was taking me to his secret redfish bar. We got to get there at dawn. Get there at dawn. He says, Now, Gordy, uh, when the redfish come, you're going to see him come around the point there and you got to be ready. Time went by, time went by. I'm half asleep and up uh, early in the morning and all that. The tides change, the sun's up. They're not coming. And there's none. He says, Gordy, if the redfish don't come, you ain't going to see no redfish. (laughs) 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 Classic Ted dress. Get away from that story. But anyway, now we're in Homosassa. It's in the 60s, the early 60s. And uh, I'm fishing with this outfit. And I figured that if... I put a twenty pound test on there, right to the uh, right to the to the fly. Maybe they won't all break off because 'cause they'd all break the fly off. It wasn't a real bite tip. It was just ordinary yeah. monofilament, right. twenty pound test, and I hooked a big fish right there, right the at the tip of the lip. God sent that fly in there, yes, because he couldn't uh, go through the twenty. Sure. I, I, I I had him on the longest time. And my attitude back in those days was, well, I'm going to hold on to him until he dies of old age. Then I'll motor up to him and I got the fish. <laughs> <laughs> it was a different way of catching fish. Yes,
0: that was a number of hours. Like, totally
1: different than the way you do it, where you put max pressure for the template. Sure. See, we hadn't learned that yet. And I don't know how long I was on that fish, but my father kept looking at his watch. Hey, you know, Gordon, it's going to get to be night. You know, Ed, you're not going to land that fish but I did. I brought him up to the gunnel and uh, we we didn't uh, have a proper gaff for that. So uh, Papa reaches over and puts his hand in the gill and uh, damn near gets pulled overboard, but we slide that fish up onto the gunnel. And even back then, we knew the formula, uh, that what we called the IGFA formula, but it was not. It was a guy named Wood who originally described it years before. I don't know if you knew that.
0: What was the formula that you were uh, using You then?
1: take the uh, girth in inches at the widest point, Right. square it, multiply it times the length uh, of the fish from the tip of the snout to the fork of the tail, Right. divide by 800.
2: Right. We still use that. Same formula. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And it works on so many different fish. Yeah. It's, it's not just tarpon. Well,
0: let's... This, this
1: and that fish was 161 pounds, right? Or maybe 162.
0: I mean, yeah, you know, it's it an approximation. Big. Yeah. This. Um.
1: No. But you asked me about that big fish off. Uh, hmm. uh, off the bank. Yeah. Uh, the bullfrog. Bullfrog bank. bank. Yeah. 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 Well, that was about six o'clock in the evening, and uh, Dave Sylvester was with me. He's still alive, uh, but he's an old guy like me, retired, and uh, 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 I hooked that fish at the edge of the last white uh, uh, bank before you go a little bit north and hit the bullfrog marker. That's the flat. And these fish came along, and this was the second fish in line, big female. Uh, And I hooked her. Don't even remember what fly. Well, uh, uh, we fought that fish and fought that fish. She wouldn't jump. I mean, she'd she'd swirl in the water like sure. a big female sometimes right. does like she wants to jump but oh, she doesn't get too on. heavy to get out yeah yeah and we 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 fought that fish and fought and we got way back toward the ocean side and uh, didn't even know for sure where we were didn't have gps in those days <coughs> excuse me but i could see the lights on the on Big Pine, right. you know, and all that. So I I knew where it was, but not specifically. And we fought that fish to the edge of what was probably uh, uh, the bank off uh, off uh, uh, um, off um, uh, Little Pine Key, uh, which is pretty close to home. Well, it got to be uh, midnight, and I, and my wife calls me on the radio, and she says. Uh, guys, if you're not coming in, you'll find your dinner in the oven. I'm going to bed. <laughs> that was at midnight. Well, it was 10 minutes after one before we got that fish right up alongside. And uh, we we had to lean over with the tape measure to get an idea of the length, but we couldn't get it around for the girth, so we forget the heck with it. We're both so tired, it doesn't Sweet. matter. But both Dave and I figured that's the biggest stoppin we have ever seen anywhere. And it seemed to us, at least, to be much bigger than that 160-pound uh, uh, estimated tarpon that I had gotten Not in, Homosassa. in uh, uh, Homosassa. But I don't know to tell the truth. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, you know, uh, but,
0: but you had a huge life traveling the world fishing. Yes. What was one of your favorite locations?
1: Two of my favorite locations were the uh, uh, Galapagos Islands. Uh, 900 miles off the coast of Ecuador, just fantastic, and uh, Australia. I spent about six weeks uh, on one trip in Australia. Uh, it was a our uh, 50th wedding anniversary, and uh, our kids, all our seven kids, got together and paid for the trip for us as, as a... Uh, anniversary present kind them. of nice yeah and lefty helped me a lot because he had introduced me to uh, his counterpart uh harrow i don't know if you've ever met harrow no uh-uh. rex harrison no oh man rod harrison not rex rod harrison he's since been my guest tarpon fishing here and uh and i used a trick to catch a uh, big tarpon on fly in the middle of the day in the middle of the Vahia Honda Channel, which I can get into, but it'll change the subject. And and Rod caught several big fish that way using that trick. But you
0: had a big life traveling the world catching so many fish. Which yeah. was bigger, your, your, your medical life or your fishing life? There... Both were huge. They
1: were. Yeah, I was yeah. an active guy.
0: Yeah, you were. Well, we so appreciate your story. Uh, I've heard about you for a long time through our mutual friend, Paul Dixon. You know, And uh, we tried to do this last year, and with the COVID, you know, it was delayed. And finally, we got your story, and it was so, so enjoyable. I'm sure we you. didn't even scratch the surface, but... No, you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so much for joining us today.
2: It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much, Gordy, yeah. and we'd love to have you back on.
0: Hey,
1: that's doable.
2: All right. (laughs) Thank you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, pal. There aren't enough superlatives to define the spectrum of Dr. Gordy Hill's experiences and wisdom. His life, closing in on 91, is still filled with writings on fishing and growing his legend. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do us a huge favor and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts And if you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube.
2: We'll see you again soon.